Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Today on Superheroes of Science, we're pleased to welcome Andres. Andres is a professor here in the Department of Computer Science at Purdue University, and we're so thrilled that you can join us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I know there's set things we want to talk about, but I want to back up a little bit to what we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Because your, well, both your bachelor's and one of your master's, since you have a couple of master's and PhD, what, there was in a, it was, it was like, I know you, your master's of engineering in... Uh, systems engineering and computation. All right, so systems engineering and computation. What does that mean? I, 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 yeah. I'm like, okay, you've done, right. you have a lot of degrees. But I'm like, what in the world does that really mean? Okay, well, in Latin America, when you hear the term systems engineering, they're actually referring to computing engineering. Okay. Okay, but the reason they call it systems is because by the time it was conceived, uh, people at the time thought that, we were talking about systems that will run in computers that will sustain other systems as well. So sure, at the end of the day, everything is running on a computer, but it's just one part of a larger system. Mm -hmm. So just the term remained in history, mm -hmm. systems engineering and computation. So people don't get confused that, okay, uh, where's the computing part? Oh, it's in the name, but actually everything we do, it's also on the computer. Okay. Yeah. All right. That I heard of that, so I'm like, mm, but it's, it's a bigger picture. You're calling it the bigger picture. That yeah. this is really what it does. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I can move that. Now, <laughs> <laughs> right, what were we going to talk about? Well, I think um, something about algorithms, mm -hmm. and and we were. You know, there was another word with that. It wasn't just algorithms. It was analysis. It was algorithm analysis <laughs> runtime algorithm analysis? Okay. Yeah, and how to make it automatic. Yes, the automatic, that's what the word I was trying to remember. For life, me, even when you were talking a minute ago, I'm like, there's a word that I remember that's yeah. sticking out because an automatic algorithm doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't compute in my head. Right. And so, because I think about algorithm or set things that you type in. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's something you're telling the computer to do as an algorithm. Yeah, it's, it feels like a redundant term. Automatic algorithm, both terms together, they're like, uh, I'm saying something twice, but when you add the third word, analysis, that's when the entire problem changes. Okay. Because that portion, that, well, that analysis portion means that there is math, that there is logic, that there is serious thinking, and just on the performance of an algorithm. And the big problem starts with our role as computer scientists. Where do we, where do we even start? So here is a simple picture. I assume you've heard that an algorithm is kind of a recipe. Yeah. That's a traditional analogy, right? Yeah. Which is totally perfect because a recipe is a sequence of steps that you need to follow, hopefully in order, so you finally get your dish, right? An algorithm is something similar. We are telling the computer, you need to do this first, then this, then this, then that. And at the end, if all the steps are correct, then you will get the result you're looking for, right? Now, here is the situation. Imagine that you have two recipes in front of you, both of them for the same dish. It's just that they're different. They will give you the same dish, but the steps are totally different. And you have no clue which one will give you the dish 
like faster because you're hungry and you really want to eat, right. right? And you want to eat, you, if you want to eat healthy, where you're cooking at home, right? Um, but if you have two recipes in front of you, how could you determine which one will help you to finish the dish faster? Because you're hungry, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in computer science, we have this problem all the time. There are plenty of answers for a single problem in the shape of algorithms. When we have both algorithms in front of us, let's say we're dealing with two algorithms, just to make this simpler. How do we know which algorithm is faster? I know both are correct, but one of them certainly will be faster than the other. That is important because we want this sense of performance. It's not just having the correct result, but also the one that came to the um, first. <laughs> Does it matter? Absolutely. And let me just give you one simple example. The apps in your cell phone. Once you open them, they answer to you exactly with everything you want or everything you need to care about. And at this moment in history, if we see that loading icon lasting forever, we just switch to another application, yeah. right? Yep. The algorithm is not as fast as it want. But when you have an application where that loading icon technically doesn't exist because you have everything right in front of you, that is a faster algorithm that is satisfying your needs. Mm. Does it make sense? Yes. Well, yes, it does. Yeah. Especially since this morning, an app I get, I got tired of waiting on because every morning I wait on a nutrition app. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm so tired of waiting on this. And I jumped over and started using one I'd used before. I didn't love this one. And so I'm like, all right, next year I'm going to use this other one. And so instead of the one, because every morning I have to wait on it to load. Oh, yeah. And so that's like, yeah, you just like nailed my morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We live in a time when we want to have results right away. Yeah. It is changing who we are as humans and society, right? Um, for certain problems, sure, we can devise those algorithms that will perform faster than others. And, uh, well, if something, well, you know what we say, time is money. So I don't, I don't want to lose my, I don't want to waste my time. So given the results in one right away, there is no reason for this device to take it longer, mm -hmm. right? So as computer scientists, we think about this problems all the time. Um, now, let, let me expand the, um, the discussion on more general terms. When we have a problem in front of us, before we write the pseudocode about the algorithm, we need to sit down and think properly about the problem. Sure, we can write down the steps, but we also need to convince ourselves to the, through math and logic, is this algorithm fast enough? Without uh, implementing the algorithm on a computer and running it with multiple input values. We don't have time for that. We need to be more um, scientific in our approach. So we study all the steps and build mathematical formulas, extremely easy mathematical formulas, that will tell us in the abstract, this algorithm will take this amount of steps, this number of steps for certain input values. With that equation in front of us, we can make like mathematical magic. Because computer scientists through history um, classified problems according to the, their runtime complexities. And they found a whole universe of mathematical expressions, extremely simple mathematical expressions that we can, that students from high school or middle school are familiar with. But these are simple enough and powerful just to determine 
how fast or how slow an algorithm will be. And with that spectrum of differences between complexities, we as computer scientists, we can anticipate right away this algorithm will fail or will take longer because of this and this and that, or this particular algorithm is extremely fast because our data fits with the requirements for this particular solution. And that changes who we are as computer scientists, and eventually our world will also transform society because it means that we have reliable, correct, and fast results. Yeah, which is extremely important to a lot of things. Me, it's it's a convenience thing. Oh, yeah. It's a convenience yeah. thing for me. Mm-hmm. And so, and well, what I what I like is where my money goes. And so for someone, it's very important to convenience me because that's what I'm gonna buy. Yeah. But for other things, I'm thinking like medical field. Oh, right. I'm medical field. The faster with the results, more likely you're gonna save someone's life, mm-hmm. literally. And so it's, I could see where this is extremely important. Yeah. Lots of fields out there Matter, I mean, literally life and death sometimes. Yes. Being able to analyze what's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, especially for those situations of life and death. We don't want programs that will take forever. Yeah. That is unforgivable, right? Um, so it is important for computer scientists to sit down with experts in medical sciences just to understand the problem. And in particular, what's the data? the program or the algorithm needs to work with uh, because that data will give us hints about the complexity of a problem. And according to its theoretical complexity, then we can devise algorithms that will perform in a reasonable amount of time. But in this case, we want results right away. There is no microsecond to use, mm-hmm. right? If we are in ER or uh, intensive care units, well, we don't want to be there. But if we ever have to go there, we want to be looking into devices who are reacting on real time, yeah. right? And that feature of real time responsiveness, for certain problems, it's impossible. But for some other problems, if we can narrow the data that we need for that algorithm to work in real time, then we can make it to work, mm-hmm. okay? But a computer scientist needs to understand the data, the complexity of the problem, and why this is necessary to have in real time. Uh, so it's, I know you have like a couple hats. Being here at the faculty at Purdue, you're, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, probably a teaching load yep. and then a research load mm-hmm. um, with your research hat. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this is a question I've probably never asked and I might never ask again. <laughs> What's your day like? Yeah, or walk me through your week. <laughs> Uh, for your research hat, walk me through your week. What are the things that you're doing to that's going to help you make things faster? Okay, well, my role here in the Department of Computer Science is an assistant professor of practice. Okay. Which means I am mostly dedicated on teaching, in particular on core courses. So we're talking about freshmen and sophomore students that come to the department uh, for the CS majors, data science majors, and artificial intelligence majors. Um, I usually have big classes. Um, just, I, I, I will say over the last seven semesters, I've been teaching data structures and algorithms. An extremely important course because as computer scientists, we literally pick data structures to represent our data technically on a daily basis. Okay? So to me, that's a constant reminder that we cannot take those decisions lightly. 
And I have to convince my students about that through examples, through definitions, math and logic. Um, so you can imagine that I'm teaching every like three times a week. Okay. Um, short as with any other job, you, we usually start uh, our days by looking at our email inbox, which is usually big. It's a large pile of emails I have to read. And that take a significant amount of time. And finally, uh, once I'm done with my teaching and other uh, regular tasks, I dedicate my time on research. Most of the time with undergraduate students who, are, who were my students in the past, and they are motivated to, um, to embrace this uh, nature of uh, doing research. So what does it take? What do I need uh, just to become a good researcher? So I, I have those groups uh, with undergraduate researchers. One of, the, one of the groups is it's actually about automatic algorithm analysis. Uh, because I want, I want to find solutions, computational solutions that will determine the complexity, the runtime complexity of an algorithm automatically. Because I don't want to do the math. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, the math is important. Okay, and actually, if um, anyone in, in the audience will come to Purdue, and I am uh, his instructor of data structure algorithms, rest assured you will see some math with me. Okay, <laughs> you cannot skip it. Okay, but eventually, let's say you pass the course and you're in your uh, junior or senior year, or perhaps in your first year in in your in your future job. Um, Algorithms will become extremely complex, extremely intricate, to the point that sitting down and doing the math to get those runtime expressions could be tedious, could be cumbersome, time-consuming, and it's just not the right way to do it. But guess what? We have computers. So can we find a way to tell a computer to read an algorithm and calculate the runtime expression for uh, the algorithm's complexity. That's uh, the problem I am exploring with my other branch researchers. Um, so far, we had interesting results. We, uh, we have what we call the ground truth. What's the ground truth? The algorithms will run an, a specific number of steps for a given input volume. So we, uh, we have a function that will give us that exact number. So now that we have the exact number, we are thinking about approaches on how to find expressions, think about mathematical expressions, that will give us the same number or something extremely close to that actual uh, number. Uh, think about artificial intelligence methods, or why not uh, machine learning methods, or even formal methods, an algorithm that reads another algorithm and gives us the runtime expression. Um, so that's where we are right now. At <laughs> levels there. Yeah. What do you need to know? All right. So let, let's say that, that I'm, a, I'm a high school student. I'm like, all right, that, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Or it's 25 year old want to change my career thinking that's cool. Oh. Yeah. You know, for that matter. Right. Yeah. Um, this, this could be my thing. This could be my jam. What do I need to know before I come to you wanting to be your? hoping to be one of your grad students to be in this field. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, if you're thinking this is cool, you're in the right 
in the front position. Okay, you're starting with the right. Okay, that's important. Um, you need to you need to have a good sense of what computation is. For some reason, when people hear about computer science or computation, they think about actual physical digital computers, mm -hmm. right? Um, that is a big constraint on the definition. A computer is just an entity that is able to follow steps to get a result. In that sense, a human could be a computer, right? Um, so uh, first thing you need to have, think in the abstract. Do not limit yourself to the physical limitations of a digital computer. We need to be in the realm of abstract general definitions. Second, do not be afraid of math, okay? Sure, math could be intimidating, especially when nothing makes sense, okay? But rest assured, eventually, everything will make sense, okay? Because most of the math we learn in elementary school, high school, or even in your first or second year of university studies, most of that math, well, we can tell, we can ask computers to, to do the math for us, mm -hmm. right? So we don't have to worry about it. We just need to understand why that number, why that result is correct, okay? The actual process of calculating those results, that's for the computer to do. So we've, we need to work in the realm of definitions, okay? Um, so you have a good sense of what, uh, what those uh, little steps one at a time are, uh, you're in good shape. Um, and the third, and I will say the most important um, quality I'm looking at my students is for them to be curious, extremely curious. They cannot come and ask me, okay, professor, what do I need to do? Well, first, you need to be creative. That's research. Research is being creative with the questions we have in our daily, in, in our daily life and try to solve them. And hopefully, uh, well, eventually we will deal we will we will deal with problems that will have a larger impact in society. We don't need to change the world right away. We just need to start with one problem at a time. Okay, but that process starts with curiosity, right? So, long story short, um, if you like computation or you think that computers are cool because I can tell them what to do. If you are comfortable enough with your math skills and you're curious enough, then I think you're in good shape just to start working on this field. Oh, I really like that too, yeah. I really like, um, you know, don't worry so much if, if the math isn't making sense to you. Eventually, it's eventually it's going to work itself out or it's going to make sense. You said it more eloquently than that. But um, I think that's a really good point that sometimes, especially kids, I think will think, well, I just, I can't do math. I, I'm not good at math. It doesn't make sense. And like you're saying, a lot of this math that they're doing, we're making them do this by hand when, you know, they could have a computer do this for them. And I think this even gets a little bit to this question, like, um, why, when am I ever going to use this anyway? Well, sometimes it's not so much that you're going to use this specific thing, but that you're training your brain to think through these, these logical processes so that you can then eventually solve more complicated problems. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, that is actually one common discussion I had with my students during office hours. Okay. They come to my office and they say, well, professor, uh, they're not gonna pay me 
in three or four years when I land my first job, just because I'm doing math, they're going to pay me because I'm writing code that works, right? And I tell them, look, do not undervalue yourself in that way because um, anybody can write code. Even computers can write uh, write code. Have you heard about ChatGPT? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's not everybody, everyone's mouth lately. ChatGPT can write better code than we do, right? But there is something that ChatGPT and AI tools will never do, or at least in the in the long term, and that is mathematical reasoning. Those artificial intelligent models, they're impressive. I'm not gonna lie to you but they cannot do beyond the data it was used for them uh, during the training process, right? But math, on the other hand, has been a human construction for centuries, (laughs) right? And it continues its development, right? So doing math is intrinsic to our human nature, right? Um, But as with any other human endeavor, it takes a time until we uh, got proficient with it. It's like going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you work out as indicated, trust me, for the next five days, all your body will be in pain. Yeah. <laughs> it's because it's bad? No, it's because it's working. Yeah. Because your muscles were not used to that kind of intensity, right? But after a while, you will recover and guess what? Uh, now you can resist more. You started with a five pound uh, dumbbell, now you're in 10 pounds dumbbell, and then 20 pounds, then 35 pounds, and all of a sudden, you are the red person in the, in the gym that everybody's looking at, okay? Yeah. It's the same thing with math. At the beginning, it could take a while because our brain is connecting itself so it can, uh, let's say, process the ideas we are being trained with. Right, um, and that will be considering uh, arithmetic computations. It could be understanding numbers, how they behave, and why. It could be thinking about larger, as abstract entities. That at the beginning, one might think, well, it doesn't make any sense. Well, actually, they make sense because there were serious mathematicians thinking about those ideas. And at this moment, what we're what we're doing in high school and elementary school is just learning from the experts from the past. Right. And all the math they develop, so our lives uh, get easier with the time. So this is perhaps something, I, I, I like math history because sometimes we tend to forget that math was developed by humans. It, it is not like a spiritual concept that was given to the humans. No, 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 it, it took centuries to get developed, right? What we are studying right now, it took years of study to mathematicians just to think about it properly and simply and find the concepts and simplify the ideas in simple equations, so powerful yet so simple that anybody on school can learn. Right? Now, take this to the next level. You will continue with that math baggage you will come to university or college and you will keep building ideas on top of those initial mathematical ideas. So that math was not useless. Actually, you're building additional concepts concepts on top of that math, okay? And it will continue forever, okay? Even if you finish your studies. Do you think math is over? 
No, it was just <laughs> the beginning. Right. It's just that you're not going to calculate ma uh, numbers, but you will play with different mathematical entities, like you're not, like areas, volumes, yeah? Or calculating the tip when you go to a restaurant. Those are mundane things, but at the end of the day, there is math behind them. Yeah. So you would go to the math. I went to that, it, from the phrase, what caught me was uh -huh. the curiosity. Yeah. Because the way you described that, described all sciences. Yes. I mean, that clip is like, that is everything in science is right there. Be curious and th think out of the box to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. You might not impact the entire world today, but what you're working on might. It, it's, I, I love that. Yeah. I actually love that. You said a few things, and I've noticed you've, you've mentioned it a few times the word abstract. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, I, I understand abstract, but sometimes I wonder if if people know what abstract really is. Like it just in a general sense, what's, what, what is the definition of abstract? Ooh. Oh, wow. Way to put him on the spot. <sighs> I like that. Now we're getting into philosophical here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is abstract? You know, <laughs> just to answer that question, we have to take like, one or two university level courses. Well, well, <laughs> but let, let simple, me, in simple, simple terms, uh, think about um, the abstract as a concept big enough or general enough for us to fit other concrete concepts or particular instances of, of a concept. Well, right now, um, a car. What's a car? It's a vehicle, right? It has wheels, doors, there is an engine that moves the car. It requires some sort of um, uh, like energy power, right? And, but that's it. That's abstract enough for everybody to understand what a car is, right? And we can fit many types of cars under that definition. We have sedans, we have SUVs, we have golf carts, and even a scooter. Mm -hmm. Right? It has an engine, it has wheels, it has a drive wheel, okay? So all of these definitions will fit in the abstract definition of a car, okay? So as you can see, the, the word car, uh, well, uh, in this analogy, will be our abstract understanding of what a car is. Because okay. we can fit, as a car, many concrete examples, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And as humans, we agree, yeah, all of these are cars, mm -hmm. right? Does it make sense? Yes. That's uh -huh. yeah. funny. You're asking people philosophy. I know. <laughs> well, that, is. <laughs> well, that, was a good, that was a good example. I think that was really, because I think kids, when they're um, just learning, they think very concrete, right? I'm just thinking like the middle school, high, even high school level, really, that they're just thinking, well, I can see it, I can measure it, I can do it. Yeah, well, I think she talks too. And so then, um, and I think they throw, they hear this word abstract, but they don't really uh, know that maybe they're, they begin thinking mm -hmm. in abstract ways. And as they grow and they learn more and can do more, I think their capacity for understanding abstract com concepts grows. But yeah, no, that was very, I think I love the idea of the car that that's this, this abstract, you know, we, we know sort of what it is, and then many definitions fit underneath mm -hmm. it, and that's good. Yeah. I would say in, in, if we want to think about 
what abstract is in terms of numbers. So just uh -huh. quickly, think about all the families of numbers we'll learn in school. We learn that there are natural numbers, whole numbers, integer numbers, uh, real numbers, rational numbers, irrational numbers. But at the end of the day, all of them are numbers. So a number is an abstract idea. We have something that represents a quantity. But then we have different types of numbers, all of them within the same definition, but at the same time, different from one another, right? So that is one example of what abstraction means in mathematics as well. It's, it's everywhere, technically. So, yes, oh, that's good. You, yeah. you did a good job answering her. Yeah. Usually it's me asking a weird question. Yeah. Uh, you, you took that at the yeah. line. But I do want to, I see the importance of the automated algorithm. Yeah, house. right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Whom all in industry is using that right now? Mm. Well, think about the big companies that they need to test their software, um, but they need to do it on a large scale. Um, so when uh, these companies are close, let's say that they are aiming to release a big application in the future. Internally, there are teams of engineers just checking the correctness, the robustness, and the implementation of all of these ideas in code. They must work well. But eventually, before they release that software, it has to be tested. Okay, One of those uh, testing procedures is taking the application and make it run with real-life data. Okay, Data collected from users using the applications, because that means that's the kind of data the program will have uh, in the future, right? So they need to run this automated process with, uh, with this collection of data. We're talking about millions of records, right? So, uh, for this software to work. Automatically, uh, they have like benchmarks, that's technically the word uh, for these systems that will just uh, test the performance of an application with some data, and they will get these results. And engineers, software engineers, need to sit down and understand those uh, those metrics, results, plots, all the no statistical analysis generated by the application. And based on those results of reports, well, engineers will convince themselves that they're ready to deploy to the public, or maybe they need to uh, pause it for a moment and go back to the design and the whiteboard just to think about bottlenecks or potential um, issues that could arise, all of them reflected on the uh, automatic analysis result. What kind of hardware is needed to run the stuff that you run? So I'm thinking that's not something I'm just gonna go out to the store to buy. Right, well, it depends on the software. You're, you wanted to test. Um, let me give you two totally opposite examples. Uh, for an application like TikTok, uh, they need to have uh, that software running on multiple mobile devices with multiple operating systems. So we have Apple, we have Android, and maybe others that are not released to the public. They need to test it with different types of users because users have different behaviors. So. Uh, for those settings, well, working with um, mobile devices will be fine. On the opposite side of the spectrum, uh, think about AAA 
video games, those that give you uh, 4K high definition quality images. You need powerful computers with cutting edge graphical processor units just running uh, those uh, those games. And this is actually a job, video game testing. Oh, you have people testing professionals paid for this, for playing games, but not just for fun. They just need to destroy the machine through the game because they want to find the limits, the actual hardware limits of those games, right? Um, so you can see for that particular software, because a video game at the end of the day is a type of software, mm -hmm. uh, they need sophisticated uh, PCs. Okay, you might be thinking, oh, but I, I'm playing with a PS5 or, a, and, uh, or an Xbox or a Nintendo Switch. Well, those are devices for public consumption. But companies, uh, video game uh, development companies, they have development versions of those, uh, of those consoles, which are more powerful, which are, uh, let's say, more flexible for developers to tweak internal parameters. And of course, for testing, because you don't want, let's say, since we're close to the holidays, you don't want to give your little nephew or your, to your little brother uh, a video game uh, that is going to fry your Nintendo Switch. Right. Yeah, it's like, no, come on. That's not, <laughs> definitely not the best Christmas at all, right? Um, so developers need to test uh, their games on these powerful machines. Yeah. and. If the game survives on that powerful machine, well, then it's not going to be a problem for the, the Nintendo Switch or the console we have at home. Wow. Less logic. Yeah. I do. So are they actually using phones or are they using simulators? Both. Both? Yes. Okay. Yeah. With the simulators, um, they have the option of um, setting features. Um, unrealistic features, right? Just to test how the applications will work. But overall, they also need to test the applications on actual devices, mm -hmm. right? So they have to test in both environments. Okay. All right. <laughs> Never even considered that like a game could fry a Nintendo Switch, like that you could put a game in and be like, oops, <laughs> like, it's just too... Well, you didn't have to consider because they... Didn't. Right. <laughs> but now I'm, no, but I'm just saying like, now I'm like, whoa, I, that's even a possibility. That's really... Yes. I never thought about that. And, well, there is a reason when you have a AAA game, uh, the graphics, for instance, they look different from console to console, right? Oh, yeah. um, well, I am a... Uh, I like video games a lot as well. Um, so, for me, uh, understanding how a game perform on different consoles is important to me, yeah. Okay. Um, because let's say if I want to, uh, to, uh, to take a trip and why not taking my Nintendo Switch with me? Well, I'm not going to plug in my Switch on multiple TVs because, uh, that's cumbersome. I just want to play like on a, on portable, um, and the game will not perform as well, at least graphically, because there are limitations, right? Um, but let's say if I'm, if I'm playing at home and I have the same game for a different console, I will notice differences, right? Because other consoles, think about the PS5, they are tailored to play better when they are 
uh, in a single setting. You don't take your PS5 and play on a plane uh, with that bulky console. No, 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 that's not the purpose, right? Since it is a more spe a specific purpose, well, developers can take advantage of the capabilities of the machine so they can produce, um, let's say, better, better images of the games, mm. right? So it's not that the Nintendo Switch is a worse console because it gives me less quality graphics. No, no, no. Both are good consoles in their own terms. Um, it's just that they were tailored for different needs and developers need to understand those technical capabilities mm -hmm. so they can tweak the games entirely. Okay? That's a lot. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. This has yeah. been entertaining. Oh, <laughs> Nothing gosh. else. It's been wonderful. <laughs> and enlightening. Yeah. Because that's something I never thought about. I, the fact that, I mean, I assume you write something and it works and that's great. But hey, you were curious. And so, yeah. Well, yeah. That's exactly yes. what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly yeah. right, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for your time. We appreciate that. Well, absolutely. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up. Hammer down. <laughs>